just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. We're here every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets, the economy, and hopefully to give you some insight into what's been going on in those areas. And this week I was kind enough to give us a couple things to talk about. But uh, let us start with uh, where the uh, indices ended yesterday. We had the Dow closing at 34 1,738, that was off by 503 points. The S&P ended at 44.18. The Nasdaq closed at 13,791. Russell 2000 at 20.32. Crew, excuse me, uh, gold settled at 18.55 an ounce. Silver at 23.48 an ounce. Crude settled at 93.10 a barrel. 10-year treasury at 1.91% and soft white wheat closed the week at $10.90 a bushel. Now, uh, we've had a couple, I want to uh, look at the last couple days of the week first before we get too far into the data. I also want to uh, hit on some of the economic reports that came out this week, and primarily uh, we'll be talking about inflation and how that affects the markets and investments and stuff like that there. Now, the stocks did move lower Thursday. This uh, it was the market was kind of flat until this guy talked. The uh, St. Louis Fed president James Bullard, uh, he said that he was open to a 50 basis point rise in the interest rate. And by the way, 50 basis points means one half of one percent. Um, a 50 basis point rise in the interest rate in March, and then wanted to see a whole one percentage point jump by July. The 10-year, which had been at 1.51 at the end of uh, December, had jumped up to 1.91%. Uh, That's an increase of 26% in just six weeks. Now, inflation, as we know, running at a 40-year high, coupled by those statements from the gentleman, pushed the market into anticipating much more aggressive interest rate hikes and, of course, uh, pushed the levels further down. Now, later, uh, the presidents of the Atlanta, Richmond, and San Francisco Fed all pushed back against the idea of a double hike. So stay tuned for the exciting conclusion, I guess, is how that's going to be. Now, yesterday, stocks uh, were actually up a little bit and mostly flat until the administration decided to tell everybody that uh, the Russians were coming uh, in uh, to Ukraine. Now, parenthetically, let me say as an aside, I was an active combat person in the military, and every time the intel weenies told us that all the bad guys in the world were coming, we could kind of sit back, relax, and not worry about it too much. I would hope that that uh, proves to be the case here as well. Now, in any regard, uh, those uh, headlines did cause a jump in oil prices and coincidentally uh, caused interest rates to drop uh, the reasons in, and that the interest the 10-year treasury had been trading at 2.05 percent it closed at 1.91 that's a pretty big drop in just a few seconds relatively speaking uh, but it's the reason it dropped so much is because people around the world come flying over to the u.s treasuries when things get a little dicey 
and uh, that supply, uh, excuse me, the demand pushed the prices down because <laughs> there's only so many of those bonds that go around. Now, um, so far this year, the top performing sectors in the S&P are those that ended last year with the lowest P.E. ratios. The energy sector up 23% so far this year. The financials segment, that's banks, credit unions, all those kinds of folks, brokerage firms. They, they entered the year uh, at 14.7 times earnings and is the only other sector in positive territory so far this year. It's up about 4%. Now, I want to, <coughs> excuse me, I want to segue over into the economic reports. There aren't many of those because I want to concentrate more on market and inflation-related stuff. But, you know, I think in, when you're looking at all this, and this is probably not going to be a newsflash, you know, nothing is normal about the current business cycle. It really is unique. It's, it's really all this unknowing about how fast, how far the Fed's going to go right now. That's part of what you're seeing, these big ups and downs. Traders are trying to anticipate what's going on, and so you get all this flipping and flopping. Now, also understand, when you see these prices move so quickly in such a short time, the, that's the programs. That's the uh, computerized programs, and it, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. It's how it happens. And when they're trading bazillions of shares instantaneously, you're going to get these big moves that have absolutely nothing to do with fundamentals. It's just price action, and that's how they do it. So all the more reason not to pay too close attention to the daily stuff. Now, the Fed has said they're going to raise rates in March, and it will likely be the first of a series of increases uh, this year. And higher rates uh, usually mean that the folks uh, at banks, credit unions, and so on, who have been getting 0, 0.0 pretty much on their uh, interest, on their deposits, uh, can see their returns go up. But I don't think so. That's not likely going to happen this time, simply because the banks don't have much incentive to raise the interest they pay on deposits. They don't need the money. They've got all kinds. They've got big reserves. And until and unless the demand exceeds that supply, well, don't be looking for those uh, returns to go up too much. Now, even if the Fed makes that uh, one-half of 1% 1 jump in rates next month, and even four to five more hikes by year-end, the monetary policy is still going to be what they call extremely accommodative. It's going to take a really long time for the Fed policy to become tight, much less too tight. And, and if this proves to be the case, then, well, by inference, inflation is likely to be higher than the market expects and for longer. We don't know until it happens, of course. But Now, according to the Bank of America, since 1954, during the periods when the Fed has been Rising, excuse me, raising interest rates, what they call a rate hiking cycle, the S&P has had an average return of 16.8% or 8.1% annualized. So the fact that they're raising rates of and unto itself doesn't mean that the markets are going to fall off the cliff. Please don't make that decision because uh, history shows that hasn't been the case. Now, of course, there's the world famous, this time it's different. Um, I wouldn't want to bet my retirement on that phrase if you follow my logic here, but expect the deficit, the trade deficit, 
you get kicked, you know, there are people singing the blues. Oh my goodness, the trade deficit, 80.7 billion in December. Imports grew faster than exports. Well, focus on the total volume of trade. That's imports plus exports. That's how much business, uh, businesses and consumers interact across our borders. And that rose in December. It's up 20% versus a year ago and is at record highs. Now, it's going to continue to be volatile, but generally remain large in the months ahead as we, the U.S., has recovered from the bug faster than most other countries. And this means the demand for imports is going to outstrip the demand for exports to the rest of the world. And that's how it is with us. We're primarily an exporter. The U.S. is still running low on inventories for many goods due to the surge in consumer spending. Um, that means that the appetite for imports will likely remain stronger than normal as they try to, the companies try to get their inventories back up. And when imports are high, it means consumer and business demand is strong. It means retailers, automakers, and many more are probably doing quite well. It's also a good sign for uh, the advanced American factories that import intermediate parts. That's why the trade deficit often gets bigger during uh, our economic expansions, narrows during recessions. It's the opposite of what you'd expect if a big trade deficit were really a problem. Now, and as far as jobs are concerned, in March and April of 2020, I know you don't want to remember this, but our economy shed got rid of 22 million jobs. That's a ton. Now, since then, we've added back 19.1 million jobs, so we're not that far from hitting a record high of, num of number of employed folks. And this is a shift in the outlook for the economy. Initial unemployment claims fell last week, continuing claims unchanged, these figures signal continued job growth in February. Now, the general level of optimism among small business owners uh, has fallen in recent years, but it's still only slightly lower than its long-term average. We all know things could be better, but they're not terrible yet. Don't let your perceptions get ahead of facts. The economy is still quite likely to continue growing since job openings are plentiful, and there's still plenty of people looking to go back to work. Now, <laughs> I'm going to make a real profound statement. Interest rates are rising. Yeah, hold the applause. Uh, Thursday, the 10-year Treasury, and again, the 10-year Treasury is kind of the main stalking horse, if you will, for interest rates because so many rates around the country throughout the economy are based on that number. So the 10-year Treasury jumped above 2% for the first time since 2019. And the two-year treasury was up more than 26 basis points. That's one quarter of one percent. And now here's putting that in context. That's its biggest intraday move since 2009. One quarter of one percent big move. So that's how bonds typically trade. What's been going on lately is uh, somewhat unusual. Uh, the 10-year on yesterday did push higher. It was up to 205. But again, it dropped uh, it, by the close to 1.9 due to the Ukrainian stuff and bringing all, all these uh, global uh, investors into the U.S. Treasury market. Now, the two big drivers generally of the move in yields, well, the tapering of bond purchases by the Fed with an expected end, operative term, to quantitative easing in early March. Now, these coming rate heights, which are set to start at their meeting, uh, their next meeting, uh, with a 25 basis point increase. Now, again, that's one quarter of 1%. Some are talking it'll be a half of a percent, but, you know, 
not exactly a big deal one way or the other. Now here's an interesting point I thought. The U.S. bond market as a whole is now down 6% from its peak in August of 2020. This is the longest correction we've ever seen in bonds. And the 10-year Treasury is only, again, at 1.9%. Its average over the last 20 years is 3%. So projected losses for long-term U.S. Treasury bonds during this period of rising rates look a lot more alarming. And here's an example of what I mean by that. There's an ETF that Vanguard has. It's, uh, it tracks the long-term Treasury. The symbol for it is VGLT, Victor Golf Lima Tango. And it has what's called a duration of 18 years and a yield of 2.2%. Now, it's selling at 83 and a quarter, and it's been 81 to 92 for a range. So it's at the low end of it right now. So shareholders can expect to lose roughly... 16% of their principal during a one-year period on this if, if, Treasury rates were to jump by one percentage point during that same period. And given the way these, some of these Fed guys are talking, that's more than a little likely. Now, the fund, that fund itself, the ETF, has dropped about 6% in the past year. So this shows basically that if you're concerned about rising rates, it's important to avoid bond funds or individual bonds with, that are long-term, i.e. over 10 years, because your risk goes up much in excess of your return. And it has nothing to do with the type of bond or the credit quality of bond. This is strictly due to timing. Now, to give you some idea about how rates have dropped over the years, let's say you have a million-dollar portfolio, and you'd be surprised how many folks do, especially when you look at their retirement plans. So if you had a million-dollar portfolio, here's how much you would have earned putting it into 10-year treasuries over the, in these decades. In the 70s, you would have earned $78,000. In the 80s, when the rates were really up, is $108,000. 90s, you earned 82. 2000s, 67,000. In the 2010s, 37,000. And today, only because we know you, $19,000 a year is all you can generate off the dang million-dollar portfolio if it's all in 10-year bonds. Kind of makes the case where that's not really a good idea. So, and if at the current rate of inflation, and I emphasize the term current, you are losing about, on this million-dollar portfolio, you're losing about $75,000 every year in buying power. That's why we call it the hidden tax. It doesn't show up on any of your statements, but trust me, that, that buying power is being eroded by inflation. Now, interest rates are rising, but please understand, they're still lower than they've been 99% of the time on a historical basis. Now, because of the low-rate environment, there's going to be plenty of folks, and dare I say uh, marketers, pushing for more complexity to make up for the yield. Now, um, we work with a company, now we're independent, so we don't get paid more or less to sell or represent any one company or another. But uh, Eaton Vance has three really good, what are called floating rate funds, which is to say that their returns tend to float up and down with the direction of interest rates. Now, in no particular order, 
Uh, one of them is EIFAX. That's Echo India Fox Alpha X-ray. It's about ten and a half right now, ten fifty a share, uh, and it's close to its bottom because it's been ten fifty one to ten sixty, so a very narrow range over the last year, and it's paying you a four percent current yield. The next one, which is a five star rated uh, floating rate fund, is uh, the EIFHX Echo India Fox Hotel X-ray. That's selling at eight sixty. Its range is 863 to 876, again, very narrow, and 3.4% uh, current yield. And finally is EIBLX, Echo India Bravo Lima X-Ray, selling at 877, which is its low for the last 12 months. It's been as high as 885. It's paying you 3.3%. That's a straight, non-leveraged floating rate fund. The story for these funds is almost no default rate on their holdings and a very low duration risk. So your average duration is like not even a half a year. So those are, if you're concerned, you, know, you want to get something other than 0.0, .0 on uh, some money, uh, those are the kind of things you may want to look at if it's suitable for you because they do float up with interest rates as they rise. Now, it's not... <laughs> lockstep but they because they, there's a you know a little bit of a lag but uh, they will rise as interest rates go up but really when you boil it down to it as you've seen from those numbers that have been the case you only have two options as a bond person you either have to take more risk or lower your expectations I mean you just can't count on yield alone to save you now when investing over the long term as we talked many times before, total return is all that really matters over the long term. That's your interest and or dividends plus growth. That's what total return is. That's what you need to hang your hat on. Okay. All right. Well, we're, I'll get into more uh, market stuff in a while, but I want to get into this inflation thing because it's bugging me. And uh, <laughs> it's bugging you folks, too. But... I think here, here's a reality. Unless you have read a ton of market history or happen to have be over 55, you really have no intuitive understanding of what's happening right now because this hasn't, none of this has happened in your experience. Few understand that high inflation is the dark side of our unusually strong economy. So this then poses uh, additional challenges to the Fed as they try to keep uh, rising prices under control without basically shooting our growth in the foot, so to speak. And the only way to stop inflation is to stop the money printing presses. But the Fed is still doing quantitative easing as we speak, so we'll find out maybe at their March meeting uh, what they plan to do. So nearly everyone fails to say that a widespread increase in many prices can only happen when there's a clear increase in the supply of money. And when you see energy, commodity, auto, home, food prices rising significantly, that's pretty good proof that it's an excess of money in the system. Now, Dr. Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, famously said, and I'm quoting, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output, unquote. And that's what we've seen happen over these last couple of years. 
as the uh, 40% increase in the money supply that we've seen continues to extend its reach throughout the economy, inflation will be a key indicator to keep our eyes on. I think it's important to understand that the actual cost, if you will, of inflation is different across income and demographic groups. In other words, not everybody is affected in the same degree to the same extent by quote-unquote inflation. Now, prices going up, yeah. I mean, you're not immune. It's not like you live in a bubble. But some people are going to be, and some businesses are going to be affected a whole lot more than others just by the nature of stuff. Now, we did accelerate to a 7.5% annual inflation rate in January. That's a four-decade high due to strong consumer demand and the bug-related supply constraints, which kept uh, pushing up prices. Now, inflation has been above 5% for the past eight months. It was broad-based in January. Shelter, electricity, food led the way. Housing rents, that's rents for both actual tenants and the rental value of owner-occupied homes, well, that accelerated in January, and that's about a quarter of the overall uh, increase in inflation. You know, home prices are up 29% since uh, March of 20, and housing rents have been up only 5.3% in that same time frame, mostly due to the fact that uh, rents were constrained by the government. And uh, now with those... Uh, that national eviction moratorium has finally been ended. Rents are going to be rising. Uh, like in New York City, people are actually moving back there. And they're seeing increases of like plus 30%. Uh, that's not the case in normal markets, but gives you some idea that it's likely going up. Aichi Amayama is a senior U.S. economist at uh, Nomura Securities. He says... A steady pickup in rental costs, which accounts for nearly one-third of the consumer price index, is adding to inflationary pressure, so look for it to be a key driver for inflation in this year and beyond. He adds that the rental vacancy rate dropped to 5.6% in the fourth quarter. That's the lowest level since the 1980s. He adds that such a low vacancy rate could push housing rates, excuse me, rents, even higher as the new lease contracts are signed later into the year. Now, this 7.5% inflation sounds bad, and it is. But what does that mean to us in everyday life? Well, according to Moody's, Moody's uh, Investor Services, they say that this, at this rate, it's costing you an extra $276 um, from what it was before the inflation moved higher. The so-called core index, that excludes the volatile categories of food and energy, was up 6% in January from a year ago. And that's the highest rate in nearly 40 years as well. So you take out the food and energy because normally those things can be all over the board for any number of reasons. So if you want to get uh, the core index, that gives you more of, of what the overall inflation is about. Now it's had, again, the Inflation's got several causes, mostly, lim not meant mostly, but many limited to the bug. For one, folks are flush with savings from those stimulus programs and depressed services spending as a result of those government restrictions on businesses. Now, you, everybody likes this one. Used car prices 
continue to add to overall inflation, up 40.5% in January from a year ago. Now, those are going to have to stop at some point. They all have to stop at some point, but that's where they are right now. Energy prices, including gasoline, have gone up. Oil and gas production has lagged uh, behind a uh, return of consumer demand. Global demand is rising. That's why one of the reasons you've seen oil prices go up, even without uh, quote-unquote geopolitical considerations. You know, their revised demand has also led to supply chain disruptions. You know, so... The added costs at every step from production to sale has led to price increases for all of us. Now, there's a couple different ways you can measure inflation. The most familiar version is from the Labor Department. It's what they, they're using the Consumer Price Index. That's what was reported on Thursday. Now, it's calculated using a survey of households, but it only covers spending on goods and services. It doesn't include spending that that isn't paid for directly, like medical care paid for by your health insurance. Now, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, can't say that fast, the PCE, that you can say faster, but that's what it is. It takes into account a broader range of expenditures. This is the one that the Fed likes to use, and it includes also feedback from businesses. It gives a more expansive picture of what's going on out there. James Knightley, who is Chief International Economist at ING, he had this to say, This inflation report is not encouraging news for the Fed in its battle to get inflation headed back its, toward its 2% target. He adds, Rate hikes do nothing to resolve supply chain strains and worker shortages, but they can contribute to taking some of the steam out of the economy and allow demand and supply to start moving towards a better balance at the expense of weaker growth. So what's causing all this stuff? Well, there's several of them. Again, folks are flush with money from the stimulus programs, been reduced services spending as a result of those extensive government lockdowns on businesses. Fewer workers are in the labor market. That encourages those who are working to demand raises. So you have what they call the wage price increase. Um, these factors and many others are driving up costs. Uh, food prices. 7% higher. The sharpest jump since 1981. Restaurant prices up the most since the early 80s. Uh, and again, energy prices, as we know, have uh, risen as well. Now, stocks as an asset class, well, uh, they've historically outperformed during inflation. And additionally, tangible assets such as energy, real estate, or commodities are also something to consider in these environments. You know, we've seen prices of building materials rising significantly. In addition to the uh, two-by-fours, everybody like, you know, <laughs> you're going to steal a two-by-four or you're going to uh, take out a $10,000 loan. I don't know. It's uh, somewhere in there sometimes. But uh, get banks, the financial sector can rise as rising rates typically increase their earnings. Uh, commodities and inflation have a rather unique relationship where commodities are an indicator of inflation to come. At the, as the price of a commodity rises, so too does the price of the products that the commodity is used to produce. Now, there's an ETF that follows a broad range of commodities. It's called the iShares S&P GSCI Commodity Indexed Trust. Okay. Now... What's easy is the symbol is GSG, Golf, Sierra Golf. 
Now it's trading about 20 bucks uh, and it's right at its high uh, simply because uh, you know it's got a lot of interest. Now it pays no dividend. So all you're doing is if you choose to invest in something like this is hoping that the price appreciation will give you some uh, hedge against rising inflation. Real estate investment trusts, you know, also known as REITs, those are companies that own and operate income-producing real estate of all different types. So property prices and rental income tend to rise when inflation rises. So when you have this pool of real estate, it pays out dividends to its investors. You can see some appreciation in share price and certainly some perhaps nice income. Now, as I've mentioned many times on this program and getting more than a little heat for it, but I am sticking to my guns because I got all kind of data to prove it, gold is not a true perfect hedge against inflation because when inflation rises, central banks tend to increase interest rates as part of the monetary policy. I mean, that's just math. So holding on to an asset like gold that pays no dividends, no interest, is not as valuable as holding out an asset that does particularly when rates are higher, meaning yields are higher. And these other assets, energy, real estate, um, and different uh, land and so on, do pay dividends that allow you to benefit from cash flow while you wait, if you will. So we're going to close with some uh, market comments and uh, start here with a couple comments from uh, some strategists at different firms about what they're looking forward to. Edward Moya, senior market analyst at Onanda, he had this to say, now that we're over the hump with earnings seasons and investors are prepared for another hot inflation report, the ongoing rotation trade will likely continue. Traders are embracing financials as global bond yields steadily increase, unquote. Ryan Dietrich of LPO Financial says, we're wrapping up a very solid earnings season Sure, we had a high-profile blow-up at Facebook, but overall, we've seen impressive news from corporate America, unquote. And yes, we have. And please do remember that corporate earnings are what drive stock prices, not headlines, okay? Now, you know, the only thing that's really important to you as an investor is, one, are you on track to reach your financial goals? And two, how do you minimize the probability that you won't get there? You know, with investor psychology shifting all over the place, seemingly minute to minute, sticking to your investment convictions is about as hard or as painful as ever. But it's also never more important than, than driving your performance. You can never give yourself 100% assurance on these questions, but that's why strategizing is a process, not an event, and that's why diversification is such an important consideration. Now, let me go back just in history. You know, I said that uh, we've been through this before and we've seen the movie, etc., etc., and people are getting all into these hissy fits about what's going on short-term in the markets. All right, for the last hundred years, now I think we can include there were some pretty tough times in those hundred years, but if for the last hundred years, the average annual return for the S&P 500 has been 10%. From 1970... The average annual return is 11.02. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's just I, it amazes me that people think stocks are risky. Uh, sure, they go up and down, but so does everything else. Except it doesn't get the same publicity as the stocks. Now, here let's even take some of this um, 
another perception. You know, in the 70s and 80s, we had some pretty strong uh, inflation over those periods. In the 70s, the average inflation rate over the period was 7.1%. Over the 80s, it was 5.5%. This wasn't just for a few months. Again, this is multiple of years. So what did the stock market do over the 70s? Not well, because I was there. I know this for a fact. But the stock returned 5.9%. Okay, And the average 10-year was at 7.5%. And the bond returns, by the way, were 5.4%. In the 80s, we did really good. Stocks did 17.3%. Bonds were at 12. The average 10-year yield was 10.6. And the average inflation rate, 5.5. So don't let anybody tell you that markets don't work in higher inflation and or interest rate environments because they do. Now, you know... In the short run, every stock is some combination of fundamentals, trends, perceptions, stories that folks tell themselves. You know, that's all valuations are in many ways is stories, stories about growth potential and what the future could be for that company. However, you know, in the last year, a lot of folks were telling themselves stories about some of these uh, pandemic stay-at-home stocks that went a little too far when reality didn't live up to expectations. But let's look at the bigger picture here. You know, the overall U.S. stock market, it's measured by the Russell 3000. The Russell 3000 is the top 3,000 companies in the U.S. by market capitalization. In other words, by size of the company. So you've got all the names in there, all the good, solid companies that are making money and doing what they need to do. Now, it's down about 9% from all-time highs, so it's still in a minor correction territory. Now, within those 3,000 shares, however, 3,000 companies, 60% of them are down 20% or more from their all-time highs. That's about 1,800. 30% are down 40% or more. That's 900. And 15 are down 60% or more from their all-time highs. That's 450. Well, that still leaves about 900 companies. And the returns from those companies that aren't in massive drawdowns are more than making up for the big losers. Now, going back to the diversification, it means you're never going to be invested exclusively in the hot dot, in the best performing name. Further, by diversifying, you avoid having that single point of failure in your portfolio. Again, you're not making a sector bet. This isn't like going to Northern Quest and doing red or black, okay? You don't win games by blowout margins when you use diversification. Sometimes you may even lose for a time, but diversification isn't not, is not undefeated. It's never going to get blown out either. Warren Buffett says risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. Carl Richards uh, says risk is what's left when you thought of everything else. Both of them are pretty accurate in my opinion. And, you know, at, at the casino, people, uh, you know, people talk about the markets are risky and oh my goodness it takes I don't want to be in the market because there's high risk you know and and they say well it's like a casino no it's not because at the at, at a casino and especially if you've been taking care of the free um, how might I say incentives for going there uh, the longer you gamble the greater your odds of losing I don't think anybody can argue with that 
the casinos all have better odds than you. That's just math. But as I've just described, in the stock market, the longer you invest, the greater your odds are for success. Now, let's, let's even take it down to some, some silly level. If you're just investing for a day, you've got a 56% chance of coming out ahead. One year, 75% chance. Five years, 88% chance to the good. Ten years is 95%. And in 20, 30, 40 years, 100% chance of making money over those periods of time. That isn't true for any other asset. Real estate, bonds, gold, any of those things. So if you want to put something to use to benefit you over the longer term for your whether it's retirement or any other longer-term uh, investment, I would suggest that you need to put a chunk of money into high-quality stocks of the U.S. and the world and, and stay there. That's the key, isn't it? Staying with it. And that takes some, some I'm trying to think of a socially appropriate word, um, takes some guts. You have to stay there. I got another little example of that. If, uh, if you went from 1999, January of 1999, to year-end 2020, and you put in $100 in the market, well, if uh, you put in that $100 at the end and just stayed there, at the end you'd have $505.73, which is a gain of 405%. I think all of us can agree that's acceptable. However, if you're try, if you're trying if you're responding to headlines, if you're jumping in and out for reasons best known to yourself, if you miss I don't know how many days are involved from 99 to 20, I mean calendar days or even market days. But if you miss just the 20 best market days, your $100 over that long period of, what, 10 years-ish, 20 years, 20 years it is, $160.96 for a return of 61%. You missed out on 344% of growth. Okay, I'm not saying put all your money in the stock market. That's not the point. The point is you need to put some aside for your long-term benefit because that's where the growth is and that's what you need for long-term investing. Well, I guess we've hit the end of the Never Rodeo here. Um, I very much appreciate you listening. Thank you for doing so. We will be back next Saturday. And uh, please be sure to cheer the Zags on as they crush the foul and evil St. Mary's this evening. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and this has been Money Management. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Money, money, money.